Disclaimer. The views expressed on this episode of Perspective Platoon with Pratik are solely the opinions of the host and the guest. The content of the conversation is not reflective of the institutions or establishments mentioned therein. Take all these opinions with a pinch of salt and a dash of lime if needed. Namaskara, good morning, good afternoon or good evening, whenever you're watching or listening and welcome to this episode of Perspective Platoon with Pratik. My guest this week is Roger Allen. Roger and I met through the University of Central Oklahoma and have known each other for close to 10 months but actually haven't met a lot and I've only met once. Uh, but in that one meeting, I was really intrigued by his background and I want to get to know a little more about him. Uh, so in this episode, we spoke about his time um, being a part of the Marine Corps uh, to his transition into being a gamer and going to college. So there's a ton that you'll get to learn about a person's mental toughness to some of the experiences that people tend to have being a part of uh, the military and much more. So definitely a lot to learn, a lot to absorb about Roger and about human beings in general. So without further ado, I present to you Roger Allen on this episode of Perspective Platoon with Pratik. Hey, Roger. How's it going? It's going, buddy. How about you? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Uh, before we get started today, let the people know who you are, uh, what some of your likes are, what some of your dislikes are, any future aspirations, if you're comfortable with sharing, and yeah, so on. Sure. Yeah, my name is Roger Allen. I am uh, an esports enthusiast, a gamer, uh, a veteran of the United States Marine Corps, and an overall just kind of chill guy. Um, I think, as esports says, I, I love video gaming. I love the space, uh, watching production crews put on these big tournaments and watching these stories of players is something I love. And that's really my aspiration for the future um, there. And I think dislike-wise, I don't think I dislike too much. Maybe rude people. Maybe that. Mm. Uh, but And mushrooms. So rude people and mushrooms, I think, besides that, were pretty good overall. Mm. What is it about mushrooms that you don't like? Consistency. It feels like the wrong like mouth touch. I've heard like that's a fancy word I heard somebody say once, but it just doesn't sit right in my mouth. I didn't like broccoli for the longest time and asparagus either growing up. And then like somebody made uh, grilled asparagus with bacon, which you can never go wrong with bacon, I don't think. But grilled asparagus alone with some salt and pepper, delicious. But I always, always had it like boiled in a pot. So it's like mush. Mm. So maybe somebody will cook mushrooms correctly someday. I don't know. But that's <laughs> the only thing. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Because I think if you go too far, it can get too mush- mushy. And if you haven't cooked it right. Yeah. Yeah. And I can I can see that. I don't mind them. But yeah, I can definitely see where the, te- where the texture and the consistency can just feel really weird. Uh, But moving away from the mushroom talk, uh, you mentioned that you were a veteran of the Marine Corps. So Mm -hmm. if you don't mind sharing, um, how did you get into the Marine Corps or what got you into it? If you want to just talk to us about that story. Sure. Yeah. So uh, I'm originally from Tennessee, uh, way out east towards the Appalachian Mountains. And I moved there at the beginning of my high school career. 
uh, I didn't know a whole lot of people in the area. And when I went started going to high school, we had this thing called the Junior Reserve Officer Training Corps, JRTC. So it's these uh, military veterans uh, from whatever, you know, each particular branch. And they're teaching like citizenship. They're teaching discipline uh, all behind the backdrop of trying to make people better U.S. citizens. Uh, mm. And I had joined because the instructor there, who is a retired uh, sergeant major, the highest enlisted rank in the Marines, was like, hey, what are you doing with your life? And 14-year-old me is like, I don't know. Let's, yeah, let's try this thing. And uh, mm. I wasn't very a very confident young man. I wasn't very athletic. I was just kind of like run of the mill. Like if you were playing a video game and you could just choose an NPC, I was an NPC, just the guy who was kind of long for the ride. Um, and through that, I had learned a lot of confidence. I had learned I, I had a knack for being somewhat athletic, um, gave me uh, the ability to push through adversity. And I didn't come from a very rich family. I couldn't afford college. I didn't even know what I wanted to do. Uh, mm. But the Marine Corps, it kind of had that same concept of pushing through adversity, a chance to move up uh, economically and get out of small town America. Uh, so at the end of like my junior year of high school with still full year left, I said, hey, I want to do this mom and dad. And they, you know, initially were like, no. You're stupid. Like you're, you, you don't know what you're talking about. Right. Uh, it, it took a few conversations, but you know, I ended up joining, uh, the delayed entry program or to wait to go to boot camp a whole year ahead of time. Uh, and my whole senior year getting ready. And then two weeks after I graduated, I was in a, the back of a van headed off to boot camp. Uh, so, mm. I mean, that's kind of what got me there, if you will. Mm. If you don't mind sharing, what was it that, made your parents uncomfortable about you going to joining the Marine Corps? Sure. Yeah. I mean, so this is what, 2008, 2009. Uh, and I think some of these things still exist today because later on in life, I got to be a recruiter myself uh, and be the guy who's helping young men and women find the Marine Corps, find military service. And set, we are what, at that point, uh, eight years removed from uh, September 11th. Uh, the attack on the mm. World Trade Center. And at this point in time, seeing eight years of war, uh, of sustained conflicts and young men and women coming home, uh, missing appendages or not coming home at all, uh, that's a really real reality uh, to joining the military. And for, you know, mm-hmm. a mom and dad to to look at their only son or look at their only daughter or whatever it may be and say like, hey, uh, you know, I want to do this, but I need your consent to a degree because I'm not 18 yet. Man, that puts a lot of burden on them. And I, and I think that was the biggest thing. And I think the other piece was like, we're when we're younger, and not all of us want to admit it, we're dumb. We don't mm-hmm. we don't know everything in the world, right? And our parents are always like, yeah. you're not thinking this through, right? You're thinking about tomorrow. You're not thinking about five years down the road. Uh, and to say like, yeah, like, I want to, go do X, Y, and Z in the military. (laughs) Why? Because it looks cool. Like, right. It's not a really thought out thing uh, to most. And, and that's what it took was me sitting down with my mom and saying like, okay, here's why I want to do this. You know, like here's the benefits that I get for college. Here's the pay. I get to go into a job field where I can like learn something and and move forward. And it had to kind of show her that I'd done the math. I didn't just make a snap judgment because I thought it looked cool, but I had actually thought through how it was going to help me. Mm. 
Yeah, because I think, like you said, right, it's it's sort of like <laughs> we are very dumb, but at the same time, at that age, we're in a position where we have to make a career choice for the rest of our lives, mm-hmm. which I've never really understood. Like, it, it's the same thing with even with college students, right? Like, for example, if somebody is trying to get into college at the age of 17 or 18, they're trying to decide what they're going to do for the rest of their lives. So it's it's really sort of interesting how we're allowed to make those decisions at that age. Um, but then when it comes to things like this, it takes a lot more sort of conversation. And, you know, I mean, which oh, yeah. is, yeah, it has its pros and cons, I guess. Uh, <laughs> but totally understanding where uh, your family is coming from. Because, um, you know, a lot of things happen in war, like you said, um, yeah. and being a part of the army. So what was, if you remember any of this, what was your first day of boot camp like? <laughs> oh, man. I, you know, that's the funny thing is, is like, I, I still feel like I remember most of it to, to like the moments. Uh, because again, like I dreamed of this moment. So how the Marine Corps does it, if you're like east of the Mississippi River, you go to this place called Paris Island, South Carolina. And if you're west of it, you'll go to San Diego, California. Um, and so I went to Paris Island, South Carolina, and this is like swamplands, very humid. This is like the beginning, the end of May, kind of moving into the summer. And uh, I'd always watch the movies. You see this big bus pull up uh, to this building, this drill instructor, you know, this guy in, in a, his uniform with this big old smoky bear looking hat comes on, yells at you to get off the bus. And there's like 60 of you and you're all scrambling. Mm-hmm. I showed up in a van with four other people. And that same drill instructor, and it was just from there forward, was just like hitting the ground running. You got to go stand on these yellow footprints. They read this thing to you saying like, hey, if you screw up, we can't kick you out of the military. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Then you go through these doors. You have to sit down and do paperwork. And you're up for like the first like 36 hours. And it's super weird because like you're doing paperwork to uh, finish up everything of like joining the military. Um, mm-hmm. Like your pay, your who's your emergency contact, like life insurance, all these things that have to be done uh, at the beginning of your career. Uh, you're getting your uniforms, you're getting your haircut. And at some point in time, like these are normal people doing these jobs, they go home. So then you end up in this weird period where you're like at 11, 12 o'clock at night, you don't have a bed yet. <laughs> you haven't mm-hmm. moved into your new quote unquote home. So you're just sitting in a room with 60 other people who also have no clue what's going on. And then randomly somebody will walk in a few hours later and hand out what we would call like bag nasties of like these like uh, lunch boxes that are made out of cardboard. And they had a sandwich and uh, a boiled egg and cookies and Gatorade and I think chips. And you're just like, mm. I guess we eat now. And then a few hours after that, this drill instructor shows back up and yells at you because you've you've been sitting there wrong for four hours. You just didn't know it. And then you go right. on to the next thing and on to the next thing. And it was like the intensity of it all. You think you know about it and you think you're ready for it. But in the moments that you show up, you're like, holy crap, this is now real. This is no longer a video on YouTube that I can laugh at. No, I'm I'm here now and I've got to find a way to make it work. Mm. And for you at that young age, what what was what were the sort of thoughts that were racing in your mind as you were just sitting there waiting for them to bring you the food or waiting for them to tell you where to go? Like, what was, what was that like? 
you know, I, I probably am going to make it so romanticized now, but I, I used to tell people when I went to boot camp, I, I told myself I had no home. And mm. I, I said that because I, I grew up very destitute. Um, and I knew if I didn't make it through boot camp where I was going back to, not that it was a bad town, I just didn't have anything there. There was no career mm. for me. There was no college. There was nothing good. So every moment when, you know, this big booming voice came through the room and scared the, you know, Jesus out of me and made me think that maybe I was in the wrong place. I, I just had to keep telling myself, like, success is the only option because otherwise I don't know what I'm going to do. Um, and maybe that's a little romanticized. Maybe, you know, at some points I was, you know, saying some expletives in my head and going like, man, yeah, maybe college isn't so bad at this point. But, you know, that's that's the main thing I remember uh for me mm. and in your time there did you ever get over that feeling of uh uncertainty if you will yeah yeah it, it's this weird story that i would always tell people uh i tell these young men and women when they're about to go to boot camps like uh for the marine corps it's three months longer or 90 days of training and somewhere in the middle near the end of like that second month going into the last one something like snaps inside of you where you just stop caring. If that makes sense. Yeah. Like you used to care that the drill instructors were going to make you do all this physical exercise and they were going to yell at you. You used to care that, you know, you were tired. And then after a while you just gave up on caring because it was going to suck either way. Uh, mm. And you might as well just get through it. So something happens and it happens for everybody right around the same time where they're like, all right, you're going to do a thousand pushups. And you're like, whatever. I, <laughs> I'll do my thousand pushups because I know in a month I'm going to be out of here. You know, like you're going to run six miles a day. Okay. I don't care anymore. I'm just going to do it. And you just start gaining confidence through that because you're just like, I've survived X, Y, and Z so far. I can make it through this last bit. I made it through 60 days. I can do 30 more. Um, mm. We tell people, you know, you live meal to meal, Sunday to Sunday. If I can make it to lunch, then I have one more meal left. I'm going to make it to dinner, then we're done for the day. Make it to Sunday, that's one more week down. And you just kind of live mm. in that short time compressed zone and you build confidence through it, I guess. Mm. And does it, I mean, does it get better after boot camp? Is that is that one way of putting <laughs> yeah. it? Correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, no, yeah, exactly. Because it's like, you just got treated like uh, crap for three months, right? And then mm. you're released back out into the world. No, uh, it does. It gets better. I, so for me, um, I went from Paris Island, South Carolina to, uh, North Carolina on the coast near Jacksonville, where I went through my job school and I did logistics embarkation. So I'm kind of like a mixture of like UPS with some tactical pieces of like, uh, sustainment operations. So I could move people and our unit and our equipment from one place to another. And then once we got there, making sure we had food, water, accommodations, whatever it may be, and keep everything kind of going. It was like the simplest way to explain my job. And when I left there and I got to North Carolina, it was a lot more freedom. Like you, it was more like a regular job with some workouts added in. You'd wake up at 5.30, 6 a.m. You'd go do a workout. You'd get done with your workout. You'd go shower. You'd eat. You'd have to be at school at, say, 8 o'clock. You'd be at school till 11.30. You'd go to lunch. You know, then you're off by like four or five and you're like, hey, this is when you have to be back tomorrow. Um, so it's pretty nice. I didn't have a car 
Um, so mm-hmm. I was kind of stuck, you know, to, to walking wherever I wanted to go or take. I don't think Ubers were a thing yet, but there's a lot of taxis. Um, mm-hmm. But then right after that, like the end of my schooling going into like actually doing my job, um, I got the opportunity to go to Okinawa, Japan. And like 18 year old mm. me was like, I've never been outside of the country. I've been on an airplane zero times in my life. And sure, let's go to Japan. <laughs> um, yeah. So like that was a huge culture shock, but that's kind of like the next step in, in life, right? Of You got done with school. And now when you go out to what we call the fleet marine forest, where we're actually like operating and doing our job with other foreign countries, uh, you know, going to Iraq and Afghanistan, things like that. Now it's more like, okay, you're a big boy. Uh, I'm going to tell you when to be at work and whatever you do between then and then that's up to you. I don't care mm-hmm. as long as you're, you're staying within the rules and regulations, you know, abiding by the laws uh, of the military and the host country you're in. If you do these things, then it's whatever. Mm. So that was really fun. And Gotcha. And that term of you being sent to a different place is called deployment, correct? Uh, so it depends. Yes and no. So for me, okay. uh, some people do go to Japan for a deployment, which is like you have a home station and then you're going somewhere for a certain amount of time and then coming back. So in my case, I was actually stationed there uh, for two years. Um, mm. And later on in my career, I got deployed back there. But like I actually packed up all the things I owned, you know, all of my personal possessions, me and them went to Japan. I stayed there for two years. Um and I worked with foreign, uh, other foreign militaries at the time. So I went to South Korea and worked with uh, the, the Rock Marines down there. Um, I went to the Philippines. We worked with the Filipino Air Force for a while. Then I worked with the Japanese uh, Japanese Self-Defense Ground Force. I always mess this up, but Japanese, uh, kind of like their National Guard, their defense uh, agencies uh, there as well. And it was, you know, truly eye-opening for gosh to for a young man or a young woman who like grew up in a pretty small rural town to then mm-hmm. be in a completely different nation with different customs and courtesies um i don't feel like it's something that a lot of us get to experience i think you know this is probably a huge thing for you um as well like in reverse right coming to america mm-hmm. and seeing all the differences you just feel like what right. <laughs> Either these people are crazy or I'm just, I need to Google this. <laughs> no, definitely. There are a lot of cultural differences. But before we mm-hmm. go any further. Yes, sir. I have any, like, uh, can you break it down? Like, cause since he said that deployment is not necessarily like there's many different things. Yeah, so yeah. if you could break down some technical jargon for us that people usually talk about, but <laughs> they don't make any sense. Could you just... <laughs> uh, like anything generalistic about how what's the difference between the army, the Marine Corps, and what's the other one? Air Force. Air Force. Navy. There you go. Yeah. If you want to break all of those down for us, um, yeah, I'd really appreciate it. Yeah, I'll do my best. So, uh, kind of going from oldest to newest, right? So the oldest branch is, is the United States Army. Uh, they're also <laughs> one of the largest. So they. Uh, they have a lot of different mission sets and some of us overlap, right? Like the army is a, is a very large capable force that has everything from, you know, they even have boats, they have planes, uh, they have infantry, they have medics, they have all these different occupational specialties or jobs. Um, and a lot of what they do is based around 
you know, the capability because they are so large. They have more duty stations or more bases that people live at and work out of uh, than any other branch to include in Europe, Japan, mm. Africa, and the United States. Um, so the army is kind of like an all, a general purpose is what I would say is the best way to describe them because they can do a little bit of everything um, all at once. And then going to the next oldest would be the United States Navy. Um, and there are maritime force. So they are boats. Uh, they have, I want to say, the fifth largest uh, air force in the world. Uh, mm. They have a lot of airplanes, but they are mostly uh, that force in the ocean that is doing things like that. Again, try to like say very general. They also have submarines, which is like a huge piece of, of uh, our national defense strategy and how we are a deterrent because you don't know where they're at. And we don't know where they're at. Mm -hmm. um, then after that comes the Marine Corps, which is what I'm most familiar with. And, and we are a maritime force. Uh, so like we traditionally back in, you know, 1775, we're on boats and we defended the boats uh, against pirates, against, you know, adversaries that would want to hurt them. And then as we progressed, uh, you know, into things like World War One and World War II, uh, we were, deploying off of ships to the land, establishing a beachhead, you know, basically taking most notably in the Pacific, uh, the island hopping campaign and taking land, holding land, and then moving forward. Um, so we've always been tied very closely with the Navy and, and working hand in hand with them. Um, and then you have the Air Force, which, you know, they do aviation. Uh, and mm. there's a lot of different forms and ways uh, they have it. We even have most notably the Space Force coming out now, which, I don't know, these guys are super smart, way above me in that regard. But that's kind of how all the branches are. And they all call each other different things. Like we'd use the term soldier, right? This, a term soldier generally refers to the Army, sailors for the Navy, airmen for the Air Force, and Marines for the Marine Corps. Um, mm. And then I'd forget what the space force is calling themselves because they're so new, <laughs> but uh, they, it's all kind of like the same concept of they all are here to the, defend the United States against enemies, foreign and domestic. Uh, but they all kind of do it in a different style. And that's what I would tell people too. It's like, when you look at joining the military, it's not a question of, could it be good for me? Cause of course it could, it could do a lot of great things for you. Uh, there's obviously certain risks that go with it. And I would never minimize that. Um, uh -huh. but it's the style Marines are known for being quote unquote hardcore. We're the big, tough and bad, or, you know, we have the hardest boot camp. We run the most where, you know, that's what we're seen as. And not everybody wants to do that. Right. That's just not mm. their vibe. And I totally get it because it's not made for everybody, you know? So maybe the Navy's more of their style. Maybe the army's more of their style because they all personify different aspects of what I think makes good people. Um, mm. and not it's not good or bad it's just different right yeah so hopefully that helps to a degree i think oh no that does that yeah, definitely does, it's that definitely does. yeah it's super hard right because like i think and you could correct me if I'm wrong i think the u.s like i don't want to say it's propaganda per se but i think how like u.s service members are perceived and looked at is very different than anywhere else in the world um mm-hmm at least from what I can tell of India, yeah, definitely. And mm -hmm. I think, well, coming from an Indian perspective, I think it's yeah. slightly, uh, it's a better thing in a way that I feel like uh, service people over here are respected a lot more. Um, not to say that service people are not respected back home in India, but it's just that 
you don't see it as much. Uh, maybe it's maybe part of it is because I didn't come across it as much either. But mm-hmm. uh, moving over here and sort of looking at the way that people regard people who've uh, like you know served for the country, um, the level of respect that they get and all it's it's beautiful to see because you know you are uh, these people are putting their lives on the line so you know they deserve the respect to everybody to you to everybody else who's done it like deserve the respect um yeah. that y'all get so yeah i mean i'm not from here but thank you for your uh service <laughs> anyway no, i i appreciate <laughs> it you know i yeah i always used to say like that's such an interesting phrase of like when i was younger uh in the military people would say that thank you for your service and i didn't know what to say because to me, like I didn't do anything at the beginning. I hadn't done anything yet, and even to this day, I don't, I don't know how like I would answer that. And so when I was on recruiting, I started telling people it, it's my pleasure when they would thank me for my service because that's truly what it was, and that's something that I think, you know, this is super philosophical, but kind of transcends the military. But I think is something in general is that, you know, I. I originally joined the military for what I would call quote unquote selfish reasons. I joined the, mili- the military because I wanted to move up economically. I wanted to get out of small town America and I wanted to prove that I was tough enough to do that. Um, but then when I reenlisted, cause I did 10 total years, uh, like 10 years and four months and you're broken up roughly into like four year or five year periods of an enlistment. So about at the mm-hmm. end of your third year, you had to be like, I want to stay. And they make sure you're good enough to stay in that you didn't suck as a, as a service member. And then they say, yes, you're good to go. Um, so I did that a few times. And the first time I reenlisted was right before I went to Afghanistan. Um, I actually reenlisted on September 11th, uh, 2012. Super cool moment for me, timing wise, right? Um, mm-hmm. But I reenlisted because I still felt like I had something to prove. I had done my job in Japan, in the Philippines, uh, in Korea but I hadn't really proven to myself that I could do it in a quote unquote real environment. Right. Cause all this is training. Uh, but Afghanistan's real, like that's war. Uh, so I said, I, w- I, I want to do this. I need to prove to myself that I'm capable. And so I spent, you know, seven months in Afghanistan doing logistics, uh, sustaining, you know, the war fighters who are out, uh, in Sangin Valley. Uh, and it was tough. It was absolutely some of the hardest days of my life up for 24, 36 hours at a time, trying to make things appear where they weren't at, try to get them on helicopters and, and convoys. Uh, and then after that, I went to recruiting. I was a recruiter here in Oklahoma. Um, super hard, right? Because I loved the Marine Corps. It was one of the best decisions I ever made in my life. And uh, you come up to random students and say like, Hey, dude, I'm going to tell you about this thing I love. Have you ever thought about it? And they'd be like, nah, that sucks. No way. You're like, oh, I love this, though. I, I want to show yeah. you it and, and trying to find the right person because recruiters and some of them are sleazy, right? Like, I'm going to lie to you and tell you all these good things just so you sign the document. But then if it sucks afterwards, too bad, man, you're already here. And I never wanted to be like that. Uh, mm-hmm. So it was really hard for three years to try to find the best and the brightest to join uh, our ranks. And that was good for them. And it was good for the Marine Corps all at the same time. Um, but then I reenlisted again because, again, I, I felt like this nagging in the back of my head. Like, 
you still have more gas in the tank and still, you know, after being out of the operating forces, those who deploy, because I was right here in Oklahoma for three years, never left, didn't have to go overseas, didn't have to do any of that. Um, I felt like I, I needed to go back and know that I still had it, right? It's like being in retirement for a few years. If you're back on the starting roster, are you that same player? Um, and, I, and I got to do that. And I think it was leading up to my very last deployment um, where I was going to go back to Okinawa, Japan, that I realized about midway through it, kind of like uh, Tony Stark at the end of the Avengers or at the end of Endgame, right? Where he says, you know, he's told he can rest now. Mm. And, and that kind of moment happened for me where it's like, I've done what I've wanted to do across a decade of service. You know, I went to 10 different countries. I uh, saw my highest of highs and I felt my lowest of lows. Um, but I could close that chapter in my book and I could be happy with what I did. And I think that's mm. a very monumental point for anybody in their life when they do something they love. Because like you said, like 18-year-old me trying to decide the rest of my life. And at 18 years old, it really does feel like college, the military, working, whatever it may be, is that you're you're planning for something when you're like 65, when you can retire, right? right? Uh, and we think of it in that big light, but it's really not, right? It's so much, mm -hmm. here I am, 30 years old now, uh, redefining my life and what my next step is going from being in the military, doing logistics, and now esports, gaming, streaming, all these very 90 degree concepts from where I was at. Um, I know that was like a long rant, but you know, I think that's the cool thing is that we get to, we get to reinvent who we are and we get to decide like what that phrase of service is. Mm. That is, that is really beautiful. I mean, I appreciate the fact that you went on that uh, rant there because it, it gives perspective to the feelings that, I mean, I'm sure you're speaking for yourself, but like mm -hmm. in, if you were to sort of put it in a generalistic way, it sort of speaks to the perspective that people, people who've done their service sort of feel towards the things that they've done uh, for the country. And speaking of that, I wanted to get into this uh, topic of mental toughness because it's something that I'm sure you all need in spades because... I don't think it's <laughs> I don't think it'd be that possible for anybody for you, for example, to re-enlist or for mm -hmm. anybody to even take that step if they didn't have that mental toughness to fight it through. So from your perspective, what was what helped you build that mental toughness or was it just a few motivating factors that sort of kept you going? No, I, I think it's a mixture of both. Like it kind of becomes like Nurture versus nature. Is there people out there who are just naturally resilient? They like have that like iron kind of in their soul. I'm sure I wasn't one of them by any means. Um, I had to learn how to be tough and I had to learn resilience over time. I remember my sophomore year of high school, I'm in JRTC and I have to, you know, do drill or like stand a certain way. Uh, when they call out commands, you have to turn a certain way or walk a certain way. And I messed up and, uh, that same instructor tore into me, just yelled at me. Uh, mm. The first time he did it, I was like, oh, I, I felt tears well up in my eyes. I felt like mentally crushed and I just wanted to break down. And he told me, he's like, you can't do that. He said, you know, if you want to join the military, if you have these aspirations, there's no way it's going to work if, if that will crush you. 
Um, mm. So it kind of became like the, it's like the theory of like talking about like, boy, it's something like boiling a frog in water. It's super weird, but it's like, if you put a frog in boiling water, it's just going to jump out. It's, it's going to leave. But mm. if you put it in the water and then you slowly heat it up over time, it doesn't notice. Um, it's mm. kind of the same thing. I think with training into resiliency, it's putting somebody in a tough situation and seeing how they react. If the first time, it's almost like the first time you box or the first time you spar in any sense. What happens when you get punched in the face? What's your reaction? Is it to crumple up on the ground? Is it to fight back? Is it to take a step back and re-examine the situation and then go back in? Uh, you don't know until you're punched in the face. So we can do that in a safe environment, uh, like high school when I'm you know, in JRTC or like when I was a recruiter training young men and women to, to go to boot camp. It was, let's put them in a stressful situation. I'm going to make you run and I'm going to yell at you at the same time. I'm going to wait for you to mm. hit that breaking point and then I'm going to pull you back. And now we can have a calm conversation about how did we react to it? What do we do? And so now when you're in that stressful situation again, it becomes a little bit easier. Um, and you just do that over and over. So I think that's like the first part, right? Uh, that's the nurture side. And then the nature piece is is all about what do we do things for? Uh, like mm-hmm. I said, for when I went to boot camp and what I would tell every young man and woman before they went, uh, I would say, you have no home. You don't have an out anymore. Because if you give yourself an out, and especially for the Marine Corps, you're going to want to take it. You know, if you mm-hmm. can tap out, if you can raise your right hand and say, I quit, uh, you're going to take that opportunity if what you're doing this for isn't meaningful enough. Um it's kind of like, I love the Percy Jackson books. I don't know if you've ever read them. Uh, I have not. But you can yeah. elaborate on them. Feel yeah. free to, please. Yeah, f- phenomenal books. I read I read them growing up and I read them again as an adult. Phenomenal. It's kind of like Greek mythology. And they talk about like uh, this guy, Percy, he's the son of Poseidon. Uh, he needs to get stronger. And they said, well, if you dip yourself in the river sticks like Achilles did, you'll become invulnerable. But the thing is, is like these river sticks in Hades will literally sap your soul away. Um, mm. unless you have something tethering you to the world, basically. So you need this strong enough reason that's going to stop basically hell itself from taking your soul away. And that thing is what's going to bind you. Uh, and, and I think that's like that critical why. Why do you wake up in the morning? Why do you do what you do? Because that's the thing you fall back on. When you're in your hardest moments, when you're wanting to give up, you remember that why. So for me... My why was I I need this to move forward in life. I need this to become something because otherwise I'll be nothing. Um, and then it became, you know, I want to do this because I have to prove that I am good enough. Now I want to prove this because mm-hmm. I want to provide a good future for my family. I want to do this X, Y, and Z thing. Um, and that's the other part of mental toughness is finding out why do you do what you do? And that's the hard part, right? Because <laughs> mm-hmm. I... I I don't think that every uh, 19, 20 year old uh, or even 18 at times is faced with the sense of surviving a war. Um, I don't think that, you know, every 19 year old is faced with finding that level of grit or tenacity. Um, So it's something we have to find over time. Um, Mm. It kind of goes back to our whole thing about 18 year old, you know, dumb, dumb 18 year old me about what am I doing for the rest of my life? It's very hard. It takes a lot of soul searching that I think that, you know, I was blessed and fortunate to find, like you said, in spades. Um, 
but yeah, like the average person doesn't, doesn't get those kind of opportunities, I guess. Mm. No, totally. And uh, I was going to ask you, you mentioned that anecdote there where your drill, uh, words, why am I losing words? Uh, <laughs> the person who was leading your drill told you that you shouldn't be crying after that first yeah, uh, yeah. exercise that you had. Mm-hmm. And this is like, what I'm going to ask next is not in the intention of offending anybody who's listening or watching, but just from a sense of curiosity, because I feel like that can be looked at as a sense of building a toxic culture, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. Because a lot of the times when uh, someone is told you shouldn't cry or you shouldn't sort of crumple under pressure, it can it can be taken as a way of sort of fostering a toxic environment where uh, you're not necessarily letting people feel or experience that emotion, if you will. Mm-hmm. So for you, for from being on that side of the spectrum where it's actually a lot more positive than like it's seen as negative. What are your thoughts on the way that we sort of look at mental toughness and feel free to share as much as you want to share, but if you're not comfortable, that's totally fine. No, I actually, that's a, it's a brilliant question, man. Cause, because I think that there's a time and place for everything. Could that be, uh, that is a hundred percent an issue, I think. For and you know, I'm going to say young men, not to say that that young women don't have a, a problem with this at all. But I think that gender roles or normatives are that young men are tough. We don't show emotion. Mm-hmm. You don't cry. You get told, you know, don't cry. Don't act like a girl. Don't act like a wussy. And we use these connotations mm-hmm. that toughness is automatically something bred into us. Um, and I think that that is that's very problematic. Um, and I think looking back, yeah, it was problematic then too. Uh, but I think that the the trick or the balance that we try to strike is a time and place for everything. There is going to be times where you have to just choke it down and and tough it out, you know, because there is no there is no uh, safe place. There is no ability to take that time to reflect on those feelings then and there. Sometimes you have to box it up and call it real. But then there's also a time and place to unbox that and to talk about it and to feel those emotions. Because I think that's the piece that we don't do. We teach people how to bottle it up, but then how do we take it back out of the box? Um, Because it's Mm going to come out someday, whether we want it to or not. Um, So like for me, I I would say uh, when I was on my first deployment to Afghanistan, I was, you know, 21. Yeah, I was 21 at the time. I wasn't dating anybody. I just had, you know, my mom and my, my two sisters. Um, and so when I went on deployment, I made it to Afghanistan. It was almost like I boxed up that part of my life. Uh, the emotions mm-hmm. or the feelings of missing home, of missing these people, that was put away for now because it, it wasn't going to help me do my job. It wasn't going to help me keep going um, because all I did was I woke up, I ate, I worked, I worked some more, I kept working, maybe, mm-hmm. I, you know, take a nap and just that's all you did was eat, work or sleep. It was one of those three, nothing else. And then when you get back to the world and now I've got a cell phone, I've got a car, I've got all these people. Um, that was very awkward. That was very insane. I remember like getting on the highway for the first time in California after being gone for seven months. I, I made it like a mile and I was on the shoulder just sitting there going like, holy crap, everything seems so fast. Because mm. for so long, everything was so slow. I was mm. very lucky and fortunate to 
be able to look at myself and say, like, I need to talk to somebody. I need to help understand these emotions and how do we deal with them? But mm. if all I've been taught for the last 18 or 20 years was to bottle it up, ah, just get over it. I'm acting like a wuss. Let's get back on the you know highway and start driving again. And, and so I think, you know, to make a long story short is I think there's a time and place to be tough. I think there's a time and a place to, to tell people they need to uh, push through. But then there's equally that time on the back end where we have to go, okay, let's sit down and talk about this now. Or, hey, let's get this professional because that's what they do for a living. And let's talk about emotions and let's open up this conversation um, that I think that so many young men don't do because that toxic uh, thought process has been there for so long. Hmm. Yeah, that that definitely adds a lot of perspective because... um, if you look at it, everything is just a very, it's a fine balance, right? Like, be it yes. our emotions or how we deal with them or even life in general. Like, all of it just seems like it's a balance. And it's about, like, managing that balance because it can go either way sometimes. It's not possible to always sort of be in that homo state or equilibrium state. But, you know, yeah, oh, you yeah. have to, so it takes time to find that balance. Um, certainly. Uh, and you mentioned Afghanistan there. So, we're going to slightly transition into a little more lighthearted side of the conversation. Of course. Um, from your experiences of going around the world, be it Afghanistan, Iraq, Japan, um, if you have like a crazy story that now looking back on it, you found you find really funny. Uh, is there anything of that sort that you'd, you'd like to share or that you'd be comfortable sharing? Sure. Yeah. So I always go to Japan. Uh, I, I, I love it. I would go back in a heartbeat. Living in Okinawa for two years was the most amazing experience of my life. And it was also a lot of work. Um, mm-hmm. And I always say that hand in hand because it's like the phrase we would use in, in the Marine Corps would be, it takes three months to make a Marine, but it takes four years to understand what it means to be one. Because you have all this mm-hmm. newness, uh, you're learning all these things, but now executing it, that's a whole nother story, right? We learn all the stuff in college, but then when we get out into the workforce, we're like, wait, what? I learned this my freshman year. So it's kind of the same concept. So I remember um, I had like the worst week of my life. That's so funny to look back on now uh, where I just kept messing things up. And one thing Mm -hmm. led to another, led to another. I had a supervisor who I love and respect. And I, and I got so much from working with them. But at the time, 19 year old me hated this guy because he was just Mm -hmm. always there whenever I screwed up, never saw the great things, saw the messed up things. So basically like my job when I was doing logistics, there was only like one or two of us in every unit. So like each unit, Mm -hmm. it's kind of like if you have like three or four elementary schools that all go to the same middle school and then the middle school goes to this high school, it's kind of like the, the levels of command. So you have squadrons that do something when I was in the air wing that goes to a group and the group goes to the Marine aircraft wing. So there's multiple groups across the aircraft wing that all do different things that all have different squadrons that all do different things is the easiest way I think I can do it. So four mm. different squadrons and all of us, there's only one or two of us in each unit. So we would get together every month and do training. And for some reason it was my turn to teach training. Every time I had been to training thus far, it was like very dog and pony, nothing really like we're all just hanging out and there's a PowerPoint up. Right. And so I was just like, ah, no prep work done. These guys are just going to show up and we're going to talk about how to put a box onto a pallet. Chill. Well, that guy shows up 
And he's like, just every time I was do something, he's like, are you sure about that? And like, no, I wasn't sure. I was like, I have no idea, man. And mm. he was just like, you suck. This is the most horrible thing I've ever seen. So I feel like crap. And then the next day we're getting ready to send some people to the Philippines and I have to build like a baggage pallet because all of our bags will go onto an airplane. And so I have to build one. I built it upside down. So the pallet, it should be like right side up where it makes this L shape on the edge. So it can like roll onto the aircraft. It was upside down. So the L was like inverted. So it wouldn't work. Oh. I didn't notice it. You know, I was in a rush. And then I get a phone call. It's like, you built a pallet upside down. How could you do that, dummy? And I was like, oh, man, this is number two. And it's just like one thing after another. Looking back, hilarious. And he was a, a great guy to work with. But at the time, it was just like, I hate this. I just want to go home. But mm. there was no home. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because I think, especially in jobs like this, like you have to be stickless for detail, right? Because the detail mm-hmm. matters. Yes. And I think that's the hard thing too, is like, I, even 19 year old me, even 30 year old me, like giving that same level of attention every time is is something that's hard, even in any job that we do. And I think it, uh, it kind of goes back to what she was talking about earlier when you talk about equilibrium. Mm -hmm. It is super easy to have a balanced life if you're not doing anything. Because if you're not doing anything, then there's no stress. There's no friction. Uh, If something worked perfectly, it'll work perfectly until something messes with it. And that's the reality of everybody's life is somebody's messing with you in some way. Something's knocking you off balance and off equilibrium. And so then that attention to detail, well, it gets a little bit harder. Those same Mm. checks you would do, you know, if you're a, a person like me, I have to I have to put my shoes down in the same place every day. My wallet, my keys go in the same spot every day. I do things by habit because habit keeps me on track. And if I screw up that habit, somebody moves my keys in the middle of the night, I'm screwed. It's going to take me forever to figure out what went wrong. Um, but it's that same level of detail. It's so hard to give when we add friction and stress into our lives. And that's where that resiliency is so important. Because then how do we think on our feet? And how do we try to get that same level of output, even though there's friction involved? And I think that's mostly what my boss, you know, at the time, this guy who just berated me at every chance, mostly because I deserved <laughs> it. But that's what he taught me. He was like, you have to be able to think on your feet and you have to know what the answer is. And it's not always knowing the answer, but where to find the answer. Be able to, to mm-hmm. push through this adversity and do things the right way, even when it's tough. Mm. Totally. Because, I mean, I can't imagine uh, how... Uh sort of how much attention to detail you'll have to pay uh, mm-hmm. in, in the field because if one small thing like you said like that the palette that you made uh, like you know it can be it can affect the way maybe an aircraft is flying or something you know like yeah. there's a lot of sort of intricacies associated with a lot of the things that you all do so mm-hmm. it's just fascinating how and we're not perfect we're not perfect as human beings we all make mistakes so yeah. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating how you have to like sort of build that ability to make sure that you can pay attention to detail at all times. And I guess, like you said, habit definitely helps with it, right? Yeah, it, well, that and just like good friends. And when I say the term good friends, I think not so much, maybe not like the guys you'd want to go like hang out with and drink with, but the people that hold you accountable, right? Because our good mm. friends do that. And that's what good coworkers or good family, as we like to refer to it, as in the military is 
is have those people that check and balance, right? Because it's not always mm-hmm. great. I am going to show up sometimes and I'm going to suck. Just some mm-hmm. days for whatever reason, I'm just not going to be on my A game. But somebody has to hold me accountable and be like, hey, dude, you kind of suck today. Or, hey, you messed this up and let's do it the right way. And and that's kind of like the coaching perspective where you're not one of one. You're not the only guy who knows this right. job. You have somebody over you who's going to try to be that safety net, who's going to give you the chance to fall. Like, I'm going to put you in a situation you may fail. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to make sure you don't fail so hard that, right, an aircraft falls out of the sky. We don't need that in our lives. Yeah. There's a lot of things to keep us from doing that. And we always want to do that at every step in training so that now in combat or in real world operations, we don't have to worry as much. You know, God forbid uh, in combat, if somebody passes away, if somebody loses their life or has to leave for whatever reason, can the person underneath them do their job? Can they step up? Mm. That's something we always train and practice towards is the idea of like making myself obsolete. Something that I always tell, told my, myself was I want to replace my boss. I want to do mm. my job so well I can do his job. So when he shows up, I just tell him to go to his office and drink coffee. I've got it. I can run this. Um, and that mentality is what, at least in the Marine Corps, we try to develop is the idea that you can do your boss's job. Your boss can do the next guy's job. So the, mm. the wheel never stops turning if anything happens. Mm. But we're also developing that sense of independent leadership. You don't need me to tell you what to do. You already know what to do. Because you would think, well, what would this guy tell me to do? I'm going to do that. And it, it's the idea of breeding that level of competency across the board. Um, or what it should be. You know, I won't, tell, I won't tell anybody here that it's perfect 100% of the time. You have horrible bosses in the civilian world. We have horrible bosses in the military. It's going to happen. Uh, uh, hopefully not as by and large, but happen nonetheless. But that's what we try. The institutional concept would be. That makes sense. Mm. Yeah, yeah, no, that makes sense. That definitely does. That definitely does. Um, so yeah, you did this for about ten years, and yeah. you mentioned earlier that uh, when it when time came for you to sort of hang your hat. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. You were sort of mm-hmm. at peace with yourself when it came to that moment, or yeah, were I, you not at peace with yourself? I think it's it's a hard thing. Either I, I gosh, I remember. Um, whenever you leave a unit, you get like a plaque or something like that. Like I have one uh, right off the side, you can kind of see, and it's supposed to be like an amalgamation of your time at that unit. Um, They write up a thing with a nickname and they talk about your time there and how they wish you the best of luck and usually has your awards on there and stuff like that. Um, When I got my last one, uh, when I was leaving my last unit, we were on deployment this time in Japan. So from mm-hmm. North Carolina, all my unit went to Japan to train and do stuff uh, with foreign nations, um, do bilateral training, and then we were going to come back to the States. And I was going to leave before everybody else because I was, I was my time in the military was drawn to a close. And uh, I got my last plaque on my birthday. And in front of, I think, the 30-some-odd Marines that could be there at the time, I cried in front of all of them because, mm-hmm. I, you know, the Marine Corps made me who I am today. It gave me... Uh, so many great skill sets and traits, and I got to grow grow a lot as a leader, uh, as as a human um, in that regard. Mm-hmm. So I was ready to step away, but it was also so hard to say that you could ever be at peace with it. Um, 
because that was the only job I've ever had up until I got out. So when I was 17 mm. years old, I only worked for one company. It was the Marine Corps, you know? Mm. Uh, so a lot of questions that I think service members have either consciously or subconsciously as they become veterans is, can I ever be good at anything else? Because mm-hmm. I was so good at this. I was the kind of guy towards the end that people would call when there was a problem because they knew I would handle it. They knew I could be trusted uh, to be mm. competent and to be ready and relevant whenever they needed me. Um, and you go from feeling very important, very empowered to I'm a freshman at college. Um, I'm taking comp one and uh, yeah. So you go from this highest of high to like you're Joe Schmo in an instant and you go, well, crap. Will I ever have that feeling of accomplishment again? Will I ever feel that high of high, you know, when I'm in uh, Syria and I'm doing real world operations and I was enabling, you know, X, Y, and Z to be able to defeat ISIS. To I'm writing a paper about, uh, <laughs> you know, this, this, you know, history lesson. It's very different. Um, so mm. not to make a long, you know, make a long answer out of a short one. I think, I, I think part of me was at peace, uh, and knew it was time that I could hang my hat up, but I think part of me will always be restless and, and hoping that I can reach that same level of success in my own head as I had in the military. Hmm. And what were some things that sort of helped you make your peace with it? Um, sort of like in terms of the things that you did, um, be daily practices or anything of that, anything of that nature? I think the first thing was finding community, um, Mm. which kind of segues into the gaming piece to a degree is that I was lucky that I found uh, a community of people, one that were veterans that loved playing video games that uh, were the first people to show me about how to, uh, how to like take your skill sets and your passions and move it outside of the military. How do you enable Mm -hmm. Uh, those same things where you like to problem solve, where you like the feeling of uh, stress or whatever it may be. And they're showing me, you know, what it was like to do that in the gaming industry. Um, I think that uh, uh, my former partner and, and her family were phenomenal to me and uh, gave me a sense of home and, and reminded me that, Hey, like you're still successful. We can redefine what success looks like. It's not just uh, supporting operations overseas. It's not just, helping, you know, service members, uh, it's getting your degree. It's, uh, setting up a home and moving on to that next chapter. And that's all successful things. And you're not, you know, any less just because you're not doing these big grand things like you used to. Um, and I think like the daily practice, and I think this goes for anybody is reminding yourself to be humble. Um, mm. I had a, an old boss of mine who told me at one point, he said, you know, is the Marine Corps going to remember you? And I wanted to say yes, but no, it's it's not. The institution itself is not going to remember little old me. The Marines that I worked with will. Um, and that's the thing to remember is that you're never that important. And because you're never that important isn't a bad thing. It just means that you can step on to the next thing and not have to look back. Um, it's not going to mm. fall apart just because you're not there. It's going to keep going. Uh, and a lot of us, it's hard to say that, right? Because you're like, I'm so right. important. Without me, the show doesn't run. But mm. there's always going to be somebody else to run the show. And and because of that, you know, it gives a little bit more uh, wider berth for you to move around this thing and keep going uh, and try something new, I think. Mm. 
And yeah, you created, you beautifully created a segue there, like you said. So <laughs> what was, uh, what was gaming like for you? Because um, I mean, a lot of times when I think when we say the words gaming, we think about playing, um, or at least I do where I come from. We think about playing games like uh, FIFA or any sort of sport games. So mm-hmm. what were the first few games that you were introduced to in your time when you were switching over? Well, shoot. I mean, I, you know, I guess I've been gaming my whole life, right? Because okay. way back when I was a young man, like middle school, elementary school, even, I remember playing, you know, Legend of Zelda, the Ocarina of Time on the N64 when you would rent it from Blockbuster. Like, but I think towards the latter end, you know, trying to, to today, not way back in the 90s, but. I remember that I bought like a laptop in 2013 and I just saw this game League of Legends and I downloaded Mm. it and I played it on this crappy little laptop. I'm getting like 30 frames a second. So half the game, I don't even know what's (laughs) happening, but it was fun. Uh, I was like, this is really interesting. So I ended up buying my first PC, I think in 2014. uh, And another friend of mine, who was also a recruiter in the Marines was like, hey, have you ever played Heroes of the Storm? which was this MOBA or this, you know, multiplayer online battle arena where you're trying to knock down the enemy's base by going through these lanes, very similar to League of Legends, uh, but it was Blizzard. It's called Hero of the Storm. And so I started playing that with him and I met this friend group that some were in the military, some weren't. uh, And we would play like every Friday night. That was game night and that's what we did. Um, Mm. And that didn't stop even when I moved to North Carolina. Um, And it was from that game that I met... um, the community that's called military gaming league. That's like now 3000, 4,000 plus service members and veterans that, that are all oh, wow. creating this community for gaming. Um, and that's when I kind of stumbled across that one day. And then it went from just like gaming, which is fun pastime to like esports. this competitive field now uh, where we throw in uh, sports analysts and broadcasters. We have production quality. We're putting on these mm. tournaments and created a competitive space and all these jobs where I was like, I didn't know this existed. Um, and, you know, maybe that could be me. Um, and that's like how I kind of first started getting into it. And when I got out of the military and now it's like full turn to college, um, I was originally going to go to school for business. Uh, mm. For what? I don't know. I think like every every 18 year old says they're a business major. Like I, I'm going to do business with my business degree. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I found out UCO had an esports group, uh, a student mm. organization there that I promptly joined and knew nobody, but they all like to play games. And, and that's the cool thing, right? It's the same as veterans, in my opinion, is that veterans are bound together because they've all gone through very, very similar things together. And based off of mm. that, there's a natural ground uh, base level that we all start off at because we understand each other. And mm-hmm. gaming's very similar because regardless if you play FIFA or if you play League of Legends or if you play Call of Duty, all of you have a similar interest and we're in the same realm. Therefore, we have mm. a basis to start off of. Um, and it's so great because you're automatically welcome in. It's a lot more inclusive than what I think some would imagine. Um so I started taking this course called Esports and Media, and the adjunct professor who helped, uh, who created the pilot for it, uh, her name's Ariel West, and, and she's truly 
one of my biggest mentors and one of my greatest friends uh, was like, she did communications. She was huge into the, the League of Legends esports realm, uh, Get Wrecked uh, League of Legends Championship Series uh, was something she helped create. And all these really cool, inclusive things that are happening in the Midwest, uh, she was a part of. And she was the one who really showed me as a professional, nearly the same age as me, uh, she's a little bit younger, creating, doing, and all these things right here in Oklahoma City. Mm. And that was the moment for me where everything kind of clicked. It, it was no longer this far off thing, right, that we see on TV, uh, this global phenomenon. Now it's right here in Oklahoma. And there's all these other young men and women from OU, from UCO, Stillwater, uh, up at Oklahoma State, Roger State University, Tulsa, everywhere that are wanting to grow, develop, and create content, create tournaments all right here. Mm. And I could be a part of it. Mm. Right. So it's like this really like a uh, magical time, I think where I had a passion. Uh, I love doing this thing. I happen to feel like I have a little bit of leadership experience and wisdom to pass on. And all these opportunities are happening at the same time. So it was like, why not jump? head first into this in any avenue that I could uh, and see what happens. Mm, that's that's awesome that you were able to find that. And um, correct me if I'm wrong, but the mm -hmm. last time that we met, we spoke about, um, maybe we didn't, maybe I'm just making things up in my head. I'm not sure. Uh, <laughs> we probably spoke about uh, some study or something that was sort of analyzing how gaming could help veterans or people who've served deal with their PTSD. Was that something that we spoke about? Or, I don't, I don't, know I don't recall a study, but it may just be anecdotal to a degree. But, you know, that's what a lot of uh, other veterans I spoke to, like some of them, it was the concept of uh, the community being around other people that, mm. you know, cared. And if nothing else, like I have friends from, Europe, uh, South Africa, uh, a little bit of everywhere, even Japan that I've met along the way through gaming. And it doesn't matter. Any, like, a, I'm kind of old compared to most gamers, it feels like, or at least the friend groups that I end up playing with. But none of that mattered. And so automatically there was acceptance. And that's a huge piece. Um, and I think the other half is like some like to stream. And that's great for them because, again, there's like just this endemic audience there's very much so like you feel valid, you feel uh, seen, you feel accepted. Those things are, are hugely important. Um, and I think it's also a little, you know, this is my own opinion, but I think it, it goes to a bigger piece too, is that I think that service members and veterans are kind of put into a box. Um, mm. And everybody kind of perceives that box maybe a little bit differently, but generally speaking, you think military, you have a thought in your head right now. And that thought in your head, nine times out of 10, unless the first person you met was me, is not a gamer. It's not somebody who mm. is talking about toxic culture and, and how mental health is especially important. Uh, a lot of these things aren't what we're talking about when we think of that preconceived notion. Uh, so now we get to break this box open. And now we get to show how uniquely individualistic every service member is and how... Mm. You know, it's like every color of the rainbow sort of thing um, that I think that's very cathartic. Um, 
And I knew it was for me. Uh, I love my military service. I uh, will always thank the Marine Corps for what it did for me. Um, mm -hmm. But that's not the first thing about me that I, I want anybody to, to go to. I don't want anybody to say that, you know, he's a Marine, therefore he's great. Might be true, <laughs> but that's not, a, I, I want to be known for my merits and I want the things that the Marine Corps taught and gave to me to shine through as my morals and values and work ethic, not the mm. other way around. Um, and that's an amazing opportunity that you have in gaming, in content creation, sports casting, all these different things. You've learned all these things in the military in one form or another, whether it be leadership, project management, a technical trade that you had a job in that applies to, to the esports industry, applies to gaming. Um, and now you get to be seen and be that important person again, but in a very different light. And that is just something beautiful. Um, I think maybe a little off topic, but you know, I, I think that's that's the big thing that I, I would say is it may not be a study, but it's at least anecdotal mm -hmm. what I see in watching veterans break into uh, what's still considered a pretty young industry. Right, right. Because I don't think it boomed until like the mid 2010s, right? That's when it, or maybe even the late 2010s, that's when it yeah. like took off. Took off. And, it, and it depends on the field too, because like, you know, it depends on the game too, because mm. like obviously like FIFA has a competitive space, a world championship. I don't follow it as much, um, but that's mm. even, you know, very young. League of Legends uh, was probably, you know, probably one of the older, well, I mean, before that, Halo goes back to even when I was younger. Um, Call of Duty, CSGO, like there's always been all these different things, but yeah, it's kind of boomed. And I think, it's come a lot more to the main stage, especially in the past year. Um, I was reading a marketing study that I can't quote for anything right now, but how much viewership's gone up on things like mm. Twitch, Mixer, when it's still around, even Facebook gaming uh, through the global pandemic. And while that's not directly tied to esports, uh, there is a correlation now where we're watching people on Twitch play video games or just chat or I even saw some doctors on there answering like frequently asked questions about COVID when we were still very young into quarantine uh, and things mm -hmm. like that, that now we're connecting in a new way. And now we're seeing something that we didn't before. Um, yeah. Mm. Yeah. You, you mentioned something interesting over there earlier about mm -hmm. um, not wanting your identity to be tied down to you just being a Marine. Yeah. So there was just this interesting sort of question that popped up in my head. Maybe it's just me that finds this interesting. But um, do you think that veterans who've been out of service for a while or who've just come out of service struggle to find their identity in some sense? I mean, we probably talked about this briefly, but or yeah. maybe in some indirect way. But do you think that they struggle to find their identity once they come out of service? I think that it's it's a very interesting piece. And I guess to put a little bit of, uh, I guess, background with me individually, they kind of speak to the to the group, in my opinion, is like for me individually, I got out at 10 years. So for the average person uh, or for a service member, if they make it to 20 years and they leave the service, they, they can retire. Um, mm. And retirement for when I was in meant that you would get paid at 20 years, you would get 50% of your pay for the rest of your life, once a month. So like if I made, you know, 10,000 a month, I would get $5,000 for the rest of my life. And that was kind of like your pension. Uh, it's changed a right. bit, but we'll just keep that in mind. So like 
people who made it to 10 years, generally speaking, or more, would just stay in. They're like, oh, I'm halfway there. Um, so mm. I consider, I, I, most people would consider me atypical in that regard. Uh, but the large majority of people would get out somewhere in the four to eight year range, uh, majority getting out at four years. I think they, and it's opinion, I think they struggle with identity because most of them got out uh, with the idea that I disliked my service. I disliked my time for whatever reason. Mm. And now they want to do everything the opposite thereof. I have, I didn't have all the freedoms I wanted. Now I have all the freedoms in the world. Um and, and that happens. But I think a lot of people, and, and myself included, it's very hard to, like you said, strike a balance. And the conversation I would have is like, you have one, which is Roger. This is me, who I am each and every day. And then you have 10, which is Staff Sergeant Allen. That's who I am at work. Those two people can't be the same people. It just doesn't work that way. Um, because if I treat my Marines like I would as Roger, they're not going to be held to the same standard. If I try to teach, mm. treat my partner like I would as Staff Sergeant Allen, she's going to leave me because that's not good uh, either way. Mm. So now we have to find that five in the middle where we kind of teeter-totter either way and we have that balance in life. And now when mm. you leave the military, the five through 10 doesn't exist anymore. You're just Roger. So those, some of those things that you used to do, you can no longer do. If somebody was messing up at work, regardless of who they worked for, what they were doing, I could snap my finger at them and yell and say, come here. And I could address that problem on the spot by verbally talking to them. I can't exactly do that in the civilian world, in the civilian job market. Why? Because they could just quit. You're under a mm. contract. You have an ethic uh, you know, code of how you follow things. That sort of order and discipline doesn't exist in the civilian world. Um, or my favorite one is like, and, and I still struggle with today is what is, how do you mark success in the military? If you're a E1 or a private, uh, almost most of the branches, um, you have six months to wait and then you'll get promoted. As long as you don't mess up, you stay out of trouble. So now you've gotten promoted. You make more money nine months after that or 12 months, uh, maybe you'll get promoted again. Now it's competitive. But if you do, if you run fast, if you read the books you're supposed to, if you do well at your job, you you can kind of guesstimate when you're going to get promoted again. And you can do the same mm. thing and map out your career for 20 years of what success looks like. Well, what does success look like in college? A's and B's and more A's than B's. Getting my degree. Then when I get out to the workforce, what? how do I f define success? I get a job, but... And I would say it's a good job in my field. How do I get promoted? I don't know. Mm -hmm. Nobody knows. But what if I want to get promoted to the next position? What if I want to do my boss's job? I have to wait for him to retire. I have to wait for him to leave. Or maybe I have to leave the company and go somewhere else. And so now instead of having this straight line of how I'm going to be successful over the next 20 years, well, now it looks like some conspiracy theorist map of mm -hmm. how do I get to be successful and furthermore, I don't even know what I want to do, right? Because I just knew that I was I was done with my time in the military for me individually, but for more people, they just wanted out maybe. And now they're dumped back to the civilian world. They don't feel as important. Maybe they don't feel seen or valid or heard. They don't know what to do and they don't know how to be successful. Yeah, I, I think mm -hmm. that they struggle. It's, it's really easy to struggle with a lot of those things and not have a sense of identity. Um, 
because your identity has been tied directly to a profession for so long. Mm. And I think that's the difference where I tell people, I had a, a good friend of mine who would tell people as a recruiter, I want you to be better for joining the Marine Corps. And I want the Marine Corps to be better because you served. And that's a very important point of both sides are benefiting. And now that goes to after service. You've left the service. How are you better for been in, been in the Marine Corps? What did it give you? What did you earn? And now as you step forward into the world, those things are what should shine through. Not mm. a uniform, not being a veteran, but those core values, those ethics, and those morals shine through. And those are the things that set you apart, that make you distinct, that make you different um, than your average person. It makes you unique. It makes you, I want to say better, but it makes you maybe more eminently qualified for that position than somebody else. But that's not because you're a veteran. That's because of what you learned in your service. And I think that's the right. defining point or difference that I make uh, for myself. Mm. And I think that's how it helps define your own identity because now we're taking tools and traits and not referencing them to the military, but referencing them to the things that the military taught and gave you. Um, mm. And I think it's a different perception. Mm. That's interesting because I think based off of what you just said, I feel mm -hmm. like what I understand is being there like for the long haul sort of frames you differently in comparison to sort of being there for the short time. Yeah. Um, so that, that, that's really interesting. Uh, so, I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but in your, um, you said that there was a group where of like military personnel, like ex-military personnel who sort of come together, come together and be a part of the gaming community. Was, yeah. was there a lot of these people that joined these groups uh, or people who found their identity through gaming in some sense? Not attaching it to gaming, yeah. if you, or maybe if they were, but did, did you experience any of that? Did yeah, I think so. Yeah, I, I really do. I think that uh, a lot of the people that I, I met through there was like a very exciting thing because now we have this, this cross-section, right? This intersection of gaming and military, whether it be active duty or reserves. Uh, or veteran, uh, you're now finding two factors of that that ground level that we meet on. Um, mm. And maybe it's, you know, very different types of people. Maybe it's the young 18-year-old uh, like me who just left home for the first time is in Japan. And all he has in common with somebody is that he plays video games and he's in the military. Well, now he has a sense of community, has a sense of brotherhood and fellowship that he didn't have before. Um, mm. and, and I, I, or the guy who just got out and doesn't know what he's doing with his life. And in that time, meet somebody who, you know, through this community that's been out of the military for a few years was in the same shoes as him and now can help kind of be that guiding light and say like, I've been there before, man, uh, and be support. So I, I've seen it a lot there and I've made a lot of great friends myself that have helped me through hard times and have been a sense of. Uh, fellowship and camaraderie mentorship along the way um so yeah i know i 100 think that there's like that really cool space now where it's like very similar to i think I, I i find a lot of similarities in military service in college but in very different ways of you're getting out of your comfort zone for the first time um mm -hmm. if you as long as you're not going to like you know the community college that's two two miles down the road and you're staying with mom and dad still 
if you're out living in the dorms, if you're now in this new place, what's your identity? What makes you who you are? And then how are you developing friendships and kind of bolstering that concept? Um, and that's something that I think you could take good or you can take bad. You're expanding your horizons. You're learning new things. They could be positive or they could be negative. Um, and it goes across military service and in college in that sense. And now when you leave, now this is the, the interesting point, is when you leave the military, most of the time we go to college. When you leave college and you're going back into the workforce, it's the same thing of like from kindergarten to your bachelor's degree, you've been defined by A through F. You've been defined by attendance. You've been defined by this very linear progression. And now when you're right. out into the world, well, that, that same thing, you no longer have that linear progression. So everybody kind of hits these points, in my opinion, at some point in their life, but veterans and service members do it a little bit differently. Uh, and kind of come back around. Maybe the prestige, if we want to use gaming reference, right? They, they hit the max rank and they got out of the military and they're starting all over. I don't know. Um, <laughs> hmm. But yeah, it's the same thing as we're all looking for somebody that sees us for who we are and can help either be a sense of fellowship, can help give that mentorship and guidance or just be somebody to talk to. And the fact that we're building a space like that uh, through, through Military Gaming League, uh, through some of the services, having their own esports groups, uh, things like that, it's phenomenal because it's just creating another way to to bolster and strengthen the force and strengthen the support for individuals. Mm, that's 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 beautiful that people are sort of finding these communities to, you know, get back on their feet because it's very important. And I guess this is the sort of unfortunate part that I've seen in some places where people are on the streets sort of holding placards saying that they're veterans, but they don't know where to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, there's that unfortunate side to it as well, but I'm glad that people are able to find a sense of community through gaming. Um, and that's, that's awesome. Uh, but before we transition into the latter stages of the podcast, if you don't mind sharing, uh, and maybe we've covered all of this through our conversation, but if you want to boil it down even further, um, three to five things that you've learned both from your time in the military and your time being an esports player or gamer. Oh, three to five. I'm. Let's see. We'll try to keep it short-winded. Three to five. I think first and foremost is why not me? And what I mean by that is is hmm. out of the hundreds of thousands, millions of people in the world. You woke up this morning and you're here. So why not be me? Why not be successful? If you're in a situation, mm. why isn't it you? Because you're the one who can make it happen. Um, right. Number two, uh, passion is the most important thing in the world. I, I got a tattoo of passion on my arm in Japanese. Um, and I told myself when I can no longer be passionate about being a leader, I could no longer be passionate about doing my job as a Marine hundred percent. That would be the day that I would say a step away. And I found that day and I still live mm-hmm. by that trait. Find what makes you passionate, find what sets your heart on fire and chase it no matter what. Um, and then probably number three is, is that, and I've been told this many times and it took many years to get to, to believe in it. Is be kind to yourself. Life's mm-hmm. hard. 
we wake up every morning and we just get punched in the face by one thing or another. And especially over the course of the past year, um, look at the successes that you have and don't be so hard on yourself. So, so what you got to see, you, you did great. And you're that individual that's going to be successful. If you find the passion uh, that you've been searching for in your life and you remember that why not be you than anybody else? I think those three things equal of the past 30 years of my life. If I could boil it down into that. Mm, that's beautiful. That's, that's really beautiful. Um, well, thank you for answering all of my weird convoluted questions. <laughs> no. um, we're going to head into the latter stages of the podcast. Uh, where sure. We play this word association game um, called uh, Bish Bash Bosh. Uh, the reason for that wording is like sort of inspired by my love for soccer. And mm-hmm. sort of the sound that this uh, person who was playing once made while he kicked the ball. And yeah, things just lit up in my head and I went I with it. the word. <laughs> I like I it. I like it. Uh, so basically, in this segment, I give you five words. There are five recurring words that I ask every guest on the podcast. And okay. these words, you have to respond to them in either three words or in three phrases. So for example, if I was to say the word service, what are the three things that pop up into your head the first time? That would be your response. Or, (laughs) for example, if I was to say the word Japan, Mm. what are the three things that shoot out to you? Yeah. Oh, curry, vacation, and (laughs) informative. Yeah. Okay, I get it. Gotcha. (laughs) So that's that's basically what we're doing. Gotcha. Uh, So, cool. So the first word is differences. What comes to your mind when I say the word differences? Uh, Similarities, um, Mm. opportunities, and closeness. Mm. It's interesting that you mentioned similarities and you'll probably understand why in just a couple of minutes. Uh, But the second word is nuance. What comes to your mind when I say the word nuance? Uh, Precise or um, unclear and complicated. Mm. Interesting. Uh, The third word is learning. What comes to your mind when I say the word learning? (laughs) Pain. Um, (laughs) Gosh opportunity again i guess and um uh-huh. excitement mm. the fourth word is empathy what comes to your mind when i say that word care family mm-hmm. understanding mm. beautiful and the last word is similarities <laughs> what comes <laughs> to your mind when i say the word similarities yeah, I mean, differences, uh, I guess, level grounded. Um, mm. I don't know, newness. New? New. Mm. I like it. I like it. It's <laughs> nice. It's nice. Well, thank you so much for playing along on this segment of Fish Bash Bosch. Uh, we're going to transition into the last two questions of this episode. Um well, the last one's not really a question, but um, I, I still tend to call it a question. I don't know why. Uh, anyway, the first question is, uh, how do you relate to people? How do I relate to people? Hmm. Mm-hmm. And it could be in any sense, because uh, the whole concept, like the reason why I asked that question is sort of associated with uh, the name of the sort of page that I run and sort of like the concept of being relatable to one another. So. That's sort of like the reason behind me asking that as a parting question. 
I, I think that I've always, in the same vein of when I talked about being kind to yourself, I think being kind to others is, is an amazing thing. And to try mm-hmm. to, how I relate to people is the same. I, I really love this quote and I'm glad I could use it here is, is from Dr. Strange. Uh, when he first goes to the monastery and he talks to the ancient one and he wants to, you know, get these powers and learn how to use his hands again. And she says to him that you've always viewed life through a keyhole. And no matter how hard you try to expand it, you couldn't, couldn't expand your view. And I think that's so many of us. And so I always try to not look through the keyhole. I always want to try to open the door and, and ask and, and learn because I'm just one, you know, simple, simple guy from East Tennessee and so many different walks of life and so many different experiences. Um, I just want to learn. And that's why when you say difference, I say similarity because there's something that binds us all together. We all have that common ground. So I think I find right. relatability in just asking questions and, and genuinely caring for people. Mm, that is as beautiful. And you've answered this question that I, not necessarily a question, but I still call <laughs> it a question. <laughs> you've answered, you've probably answered this throughout the episode, but if you were to leave us with a parting thought, a positive thought, that you'd like for the listeners and the watchers to sort of take away from this episode, um, what would that be? Each and one of each and every person here is unique, and each one of you are here for a reason. We may not know exactly what it is yet. We have to trust the process and know that people care. Um, people care for you, and it's going to be all right someday. Um, so just keep pushing through now and, and find your passion, uh, live through, live through experiences and, and find a way to persevere. Uh, Cause it's all going to be worth it in the end. I think, I think that's probably the last thought I could give. Mm, that That is a beautiful way. That is a beautiful way to sort of, uh, close this off. And uh, thank you so much, Roger, for joining me today. I really appreciate you taking the time out to do this. No, thank you so much for having me. It's been a it's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. And to all of you listening and watching, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Perspective Platoon with Pratik. Make sure to follow Roger on his social media accounts, subscribe to the podcast, leave a review on the platform of your choice, and follow Random Relatability on social media. Share your thoughts on the guest introduction post on the Random Relatability Instagram page and also check the description for other sources of information and content that we've talked about today. If you've made it this far, thank you once again. I really appreciate you listening to the entire episode and joining in on the conversation. Until next time, stay safe, take care and don't forget to keep your mind open to different perspectives because you never know. Random relatability might just be around the corner.